In July? Starting in July. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by MX Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. MX Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perone Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin with David Morgan. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan, a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the MorganReport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big-picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. David, welcome back to the program. Hello, it's good to be back. With all that's happening in the Middle East, do you think that's really changing the calculus for energy or has it been changing on its own for the last few years anyway? Good question. I think it's been changing on its own. I mean, if we look at the last year or so, we saw oil really do poorly, then all of a sudden it caught a bid and moved up rather significantly, and now it's waning again, even with what's going on in the Middle East with this tension in the Strait of Hormuz, which I remember hearing that first term from my father. Not that I want to digress too far, but when I learned about the significance about that tiny little area that could obviously be blockaded pretty easily and how critical it is to the flow of oil worldwide. I just tuned into that. So anyone that knows hardly anything about oil understands the geography of that region is sensitive to what's going on. Having said that, I don't want to project anything. Right now, I'm going to remain calm. I think we don't need to panic. I know there's a ton of videos because I woke up this morning and every other one had something to do with this drone that was shot down purportedly by Iran. I think the United States is not going to overreact. I think they're going to take it in stride. Yes, is there a false flag potential? Absolutely. Does the U.S. want to go to war with Iran? based on General Wesley Clark's video that's so popular about being called into the Pentagon, one of the offices, and going through what the upper echelon wanted to do as far as invade these different countries over, I think it was a five-year plan, if I recall correctly. I mean, I can't discount it too much, but, you know, war is, and I am digressing, just something you want to avoid at all costs. I don't think there is much to trigger the oil price unless it's substantial. And I don't look at this drone shoot down as substantial. I'm sure you'll get a lot of comments on that in your comment section to keep it open. That's how I see it. Right now, oil is the most important commodity on the planet, and we can open it up for further discussion. Thank you. Quebec, Canada is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's where you'll find Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex, during their 2018-2019 drilling program on their 100% owned Perone Gold Project, has returned multiple super high-grade gold intersects. These include approximately 9.5 ounces per ton of gold over 1.35 meters. 
20.5 ounces per ton of gold over 0.8 meters and 7.6 ounces per ton gold over 0.65 meters. Visible Gold has been intersected in virtually every hole of the high-grade zone exploration program. Amex is led by a very senior and talented team of mine finders and mine financiers that have invested their own capital next to shareholders' capital and are committed to spending shareholder money wisely to build value. The company recently completed a $5 million financing and brought on two large investors, Eric Sprott and Commodity Capital. Amex can drill year-round and recently added a second drill to allow for regional exploration and targeted drilling on the eastern gold zone of the Perone property, which should continue to yield ample news flows throughout the balance of 2019. Follow this exciting gold discovery story by going to AmexExploration.com. Here's a hypothetical for you. You've got $10,000 just sitting around that you want to invest. You're only going to do one thing with that. Of course, you never just take one thing with your money. You like a basket of, of options with everything that you do. I realize that. But if, for this scenario, you've got, let's say, $10,000 you want to invest in the market. Would you put it into a lithium concern, an oil concern? Would you look for something in that area? Or would you go to uranium? You know, my age and my expertise with investing for more than 40 years, starting at 16 years of age. So 16 from 66, 50 years of investing. So I'd go with oil for a lot of reasons but it's mostly being conservative and more of a sure thing. Uranium, I think, is in a bull market. We have a uranium stock in our portfolio at the Morgan Report, which is doing very well. They also have access to vanadium, which has been kind of one of the minerals de jure, meaning uh, one of these energy metals that everyone's talking about. And these things are kind of burning matches. They get very excited for a while, and then it kind of dies out. Lithium is about the only one that people continue to bring up all the time. Lithium, there is an abundance of lithium. It's really kind of overstated as far as, you know, it being rare or whatever, but there aren't that many good deposits. So dollars spent on lithium, I would rather be in a, like a lithium fund that actually had lithium itself rather than looking at a mining concern. And if you're big in the lithium and you have a certain company or companies and you're a lithium investor, good for you. I don't, you know, want to dissuade anyone from what they've researched. I've looked at it. I've done enough research. We have no lithium picks in our portfolio. We do have uranium. I am more bullish on uranium. I am looking at what we did a white paper on in the Morgan Report, which revolved around the battery metals is how we titled it. There's reasons that people are looking at cobalt and vanadium, even silver, as an alternative battery metal. And that's because lithium is probably not the most effective, efficient, easily charged battery source. It's a good one. We all use it. I carry one. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But the way true economics works is you're always looking to take that product X and improve it. So you improve it in a number of ways. You improve what the cost will be, and you can improve the efficiency, and you can do both. Look at the Apple phone for an example. I think everybody can relate to that. You know what the iPhone 4 looked like and what it did compared to what the iPhone 7 or 8 does, or 10 or whatever it is. The 4 really did you know, similar to what the newest one does, but not with the efficiency, the costs, et cetera, et cetera. So this is how real economics works. So what I'm trying to state is that lithium is not a monopoly. It's not the only high-density product that can hold a charge and dissipate out. So there will be alternatives. I mean, lithium may not, and I don't know this for sure, and no one knows, may not be the go-to 
battery metal of the future. It may turn out to be something else. It could be a hybrid. There's a lot of things out there, and it's kind of exciting in a way. It's one of the things that I look at in our other report, the coming energy boom. We've got a cobalt play that was the only cobalt company I liked. I'm very picky, as you know. And it just got a bid from an investment company with a 66% premium. So I've only had that letter going for about six months. That is kind of a nice little boost for everybody that's become a subscriber to the coming energy boom newsletter because nothing like profiting <laughs> to make investors happy. I was at a uh, one of Simon Moore's conferences a couple of years ago in Newport Beach, and there was somebody there from one of the major company that was involved in the battery space. And he was just saying that with all the issues with cobalt, especially the DRC and the scarcity of supply for that, it was going to be mitigated with nickel. Do you agree? Well, certainly DRC is a large concern. There is some fairly significant cobalt deposits here in Idaho. I don't live in Idaho. I live in Washington, but it could be sourced to other places. But DRC, yes, I agree. Nickel, haven't looked at it hard, but I'm open to the idea. I mean, in fact, it's kind of compounding on what I just said. I mean, it's sort of an open field to how this thing will shake out in the future. Obviously, with so much solar going on and so much wind going on, you need to take the excess energy that is generated from time to time and be able to store it. You want to store it efficiently as possible. And you want to be able to store it with as small a loss as possible. And you want to do it safely as possible. So, again, I think it's an open question right now. Is nickel it? I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. You use the word open, and I want to open up this discussion just a bit here. To the generalist investor, somebody who has heard about gold, heard about the resource sector, but not really that educated in it, but on the other hand, very sophisticated and is just looking to make money, is listening to this segment. What would you say to that individual? What could potentially be the best pick? Because let's face it, cobalt and nickel and perhaps even lithium is something that we have to explain. And it might take longer than a minute to explain what they are. And in that respect, you can't sell something that takes a long time to explain. So what really stands out in the resource sector? Well, uh, you may not get the answer you want, but you you allow me free speech. I mean, I think if I was a new investor, I'd look at the ETFs. I'd look at ETFs that maybe have a combination of different energies in them. I'm not familiar with all the ETFs. I mean, we use XLE in the coming energy boom, which is basically geared to oil. But we do look at, as I said, everything we've been talking about specifically. But it takes a lot of effort to drill down in a mining company to discover which ones are viable, which ones aren't, which ones have what enterprise value, which ones really are going to make a profit or are on the cusp of making a profit. So I think the ETFs are probably a way to go for a general investor. You could do one or two. I hate doing 10. You said, as I diversify and I do, and it's important that you do even within a sector, but then you don't want to over diversify. I remember, I won't name names, but a well-known, uh, let's say, personality in this space, gold and silver space, and their portfolio, I think they had like a hundred junior mining companies. And this is ridiculous. I'm laughing because it's just, you know, he's not the only one. But no, you do need to diversify within the sector. I don't have a pick. You know, someone call me for a consultation and ask me, that's exactly what I tell them. I go, let me look them up for you. Let me find three or four ETFs and you choose two or three type of thing. And no more than that. You don't need 10. And you're saying it doesn't matter what the mineral, what the metal is, could be gold, could be silver, could be anything. Look at an ETF. I'm saying that ETF is great for a general investor, but yeah, of course you have to look at what it is. I mean, what would be the perfect ETF? And I don't know if it exists, 
would be one that held like all battery metals together. So it'd be like a mutual fund ETF kind of thing that held two or three lithium stocks, two or three cobalt plays, held a vanadium play or two, that type of thing. So you kind of get a wraparound. You're not going to do as good as picking an individual company, but you basically are diversified within one ETF. That's what I'd be looking for. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Have a great day. Thanks again, sir. You're most welcome. I've been chatting with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. And download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report has been sponsored by Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX. And in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned, our own gold project in Quebec, Canada. Featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, amexexploration.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CYP and in the U.S. as CYDVF. Cypress Development is focused on developing its 100% held Clayton Valley Lithium Project in Nevada. The company's Clayton Valley project is located immediately east of Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine, North America's only lithium brine operation. Exploration by Cypress has discovered an extensive deposit of leachable lithium-bearing claystone at surface adjacent to the brine field. The size of the discovery makes the Clayton Valley project a premier target with the potential to impact the future production of lithium in North America. Bill, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Great being back with you. If you wouldn't mind, catch us up on the Clayton Valley Project. Cypress's main project that we have is Clayton Valley Lithium Project. It's located just southwest of Tonopah, Nevada, about halfway between Las Vegas and Reno. And what we're looking at there is a very large sedimentary-hosted lithium deposit. It's in clays, and it's right at the surface. It's uh, about 2 billion ton resource, containing about 9 million tons total of lithium carbonate. So quite a significant resource on the world stage, lithium projects. Deposit's great as far as its location, has access to it, power nearby, and it sits at the surface, as I said, that has no overburden, and it's an acid leachable clay. So what we're looking at with the project is taking it in kind of a conventional acid leaching process, putting it into agitated tank leach with sulfuric acid and extracting the lithium from it, and from there, extracting the lithium from solution. What is unique about this particular process that you have as opposed to other projects in the area or in North America? Well, it's really in the space of clays now. It's not all that unique. It almost like we're following the same sort of process flow sheet as you might have for oxide copper or oxide cobalt. Certainly the Chinese are into rare earths and they extract rare earths using a sulfuric acid leach from clays. So that portion of it's not really unique. There's other projects that are advancing. Lithium Americas and Ioneer have two claystone deposits that are also looking at sulfuric acid leaching. It is unique in the space of lithium projects because of 60% 60% of the world's lithium comes out of brines, which are like oil field brines. They're solutions that are pumped out from subsurface and evaporated in evaporation ponds. Chile and Argentina are the big producers of that. 40% of the world's lithium comes out of hard rock pegmatites, which green bushes in Australia is the big dog in that. And that's more of a conventional mine mill where you take the ore, you crush it, grind it, and recover it by flotation and ship a concentrate off to wherever you're headed. 
most likely Asia. You are embarking on a pre-feasibility study for the Clayton Valley Lithium Project. Tell us about how that is going to progress. Well, we completed a preliminary economic assessment, a PEA study in October last year, which had positive, robust economics to it. Since that time, we've been working steadily on uh, metallurgy. That's the big driver in the project is can you actually extract and recover the lithium from the clays? So that's the main focus. Mining on this is relatively simple. But we had a drilling program started in March, ended in April. We added a number of infill holes, which we're using now for metallurgy. Those confirmed the assumptions in the PEA. Pre-feasibility studies progressing. We anticipate that it will be completed this summer. Everything along the line of the pre-feasibility studies falling into place. We just announced in a press release that we had completed a bulk sample, which we're using for phase two of the PFS, which is focusing on extracting the lithium from solutions, from the pregnant leach solution. The bulk sample that was leached was 100 kilos. That was about 400 times the size of any sample we'd been testing prior to that. That was quite successful. We had 85% extraction of the lithium with acid consumption that was right along line with the PEA of 124 kilos a ton on the acid consumption. So pretty positive as far as the progress is going right now for the pre-feasibility study, what we're looking at is phase two, which is concentrating on recovering the lithium from solution. With that, we're looking at how we actually handle the solution in the leach, how we concentrate it either through evaporation or ion exchange, and how we get the lithium out to a final product. Give us a snapshot of what this project could look like in the future once you have the data to proceed forward with further development of the project. It's sizable. With a project that size, how is that a game changer potentially? Well, it's certainly significant in terms of Nevada and U.S. production of lithium. We targeted 25,000 tons a year of LCE lithium carbonate equivalent as our production goal out of the PEA. Our PFS looks like it'll be on track for that sort of number. To do that, we would have a 15,000 ton a day surface mine, no strip ratio to that. So basically we're handing 15,000 tons of material into a process that looks like a conventional leach process. It could be scalable upwards or downwards from that. Most likely we'd like to go upwards over time. And you can see something that might be maybe a double on that size going forward. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. We've got about 80 million shares out. Our share structure is distributed between mostly retail investors, a few insiders. There's no real dominant position in the company as far as shares. And our stock is trading about 20 cents. So we're about a $15 million market cap right now. Bill, tell us about what's happening in the next few months. Well, our first main driver is finishing the PFS and getting out this summer. After that, we'll be looking to do, say, uh, more studies in advance of uh, progressing to a feasibility study. With that in mind, we are looking and trying to size ourselves towards a pilot plant that would support the feasibility study. And then we'll also be doing some optimization studies looking at, say, potential byproducts out of the material and ways to cut costs. Well, Bill, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, Alice. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading a CYP on the TSX Venture Exchange and CYDBF in the U.S. Visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, 
the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Aubin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. As I understand it, we are beginning the drilling at the Justin Project in the Yukon. Tell us all about it, sir. We did. We started drilling actually three days ago. It's going well. Long story short, I decided to add a month to our drill seasons so that it wasn't just the Forest Kerr Project in the Golden Triangle. Over four months, we've now added a month in the Yukon. It's not a huge program, but it's a good one. It's another high-grade potential gold system. The idea behind it is in 2012, we discovered an intrusion-related gold system there, which tends to be lower-grade bulk tonnage potential, like Fort Knox or Victoria Gold or Kamenak. But right beside it in the last two years through some very just field work, sampling and trenching, just a kilometer and a half away, right beside it, we've got a high-grade orogenic system, which is much older than the intrusion-related system. And it's basically tied on to Golden Predator's three aces, which is over the years, it's turned out to be very high grade. And what we've got now is we've got five trenches in this system along 250 meter strike length. And we've got trench samples up to 82 grams. And there's lots of free gold and coarse gold in the system. So what we're doing is bringing up a RAB drill, which can do rotary air blast. And we're going to do 20 holes along that strike length and see what the potential is for a continuity of it in some way, shape, or form because it's sitting at surface. And at the same time, I've got a diamond drill coming to test more around the original intrusion-related discovery. We call it the POW zone. The theory behind it all is that we think there could be what's called overprinting, mineralizing systems with the POW zone. So you've got a high-grade system that's been influenced by this newer intrusion that's come up through, and it's brought it close to surface or at surface with any luck, I guess you would call it. We could have potentially a remobilizing of mineralization in that old system, and that may well influence the newer, younger system, the POW zone. So we're drilling on both areas right now. We'll be finished by the end of the month. We'll know a heck of a lot more. But the good thing is it's going to allow us to have news flow starting in July instead of us starting drilling in July at the Forest Kerr and not having news flow really until mid-August. So we're going to have a lot more news flow this year. And then as soon as this program ends, we will be starting Forest Kerr at the end of this month. You know, one thing I've noticed in the junior mining space is not everybody is as aggressive as you are with regard to, I guess, for lack of another phrase, a stimulating news flow, and you're doing it with real news. That's part of the philosophy of Abin as a company is it's a gold company, gold exploration, and specifically high grade. High grade excites the market. You don't have to be in a great market. But if you start hitting high grade, the example would be last summer. Look what it does to the stock. The market gets excited. It's there. You can be in the depth of a crummy market and you'll still get the attention when you hit high grade gold. And I'm not looking for porphyry style gold or anything. We're looking for epithermal gold where you can get some serious grades, not unlike Predium, what they've done. Right next to us is the old mine, SK Creek, which Skeen is trying to redevelop. But that was one of the highest grade gold mines in the world. Another head grade was excessive, I think, 40 grams. SNP straight right beside us to the west and it was high grade very very high grade so you go to areas that offer that and the yukon's one area albeit you get a lot of these lower grade systems they can be related to high grade systems nearby as you get away from intrusions you get fracturing in the country rock and that's where you can get the emplacement of some pretty high grade vein systems that's what we're looking at if i were looking for copper 
it could be a different story and doesn't excite like gold does. Gold doesn't have a set time, like it's time to start looking at copper and base metals and everything else. Gold can be whenever you hit it, you'll get the market. Speaking of which, this is a market that is good for generalists. And with regard to generalists, only high grade will suffice. In fact, the mining sector itself is fairly well flat right now, with the exception of companies like yours that have that grade. Yeah, we've shown we've had it. We're trying to show more. That's our goal right now. I just got back from Montreal at an investment conference there and and I was explaining to people, yes, this is our third season up there, but it's our second season of drilling. We've drilled 12,000 meters, but in reality, that's barely half a year. I mean, that's like eight months worth of drilling. So if I were located in a nice sunny spot, we wouldn't even be a year into it yet. We've gone a long way. We're in a system that's just full of gold. That boundary zone has got it everywhere. We're trying to figure out exactly where it's all coming from because I think off that curve fault that's such an important part of the Golden Triangle, you get lots of sub-faults, splays, structures that come off it that can really create an environment of a lot of activity. But I think now that we've finished this airborne survey, this mag survey that we've done, we're going to have a real good impression of deeper seated structures because we've only drilled, I don't think we've gone deeper than 150 meters on any of the holes we drilled last year or the year before. And this will give us some direction and targets and we used oriented core last year so we've got a better sense of orientation and Cornell's been working all year on a 3D modeling this deal, North Boundary Zone in particular. And he's come up with three areas that we need to get into fairly quickly and drill and hopefully have success like we did last year. One other thing I should point out is the fact that you've got some significant majors there that are actually active in the region. They haven't gone to sleep at all, like Newmont, for instance. Well, Newmont, what a great surprise that was, took over Gold Corp. Gold Corp was in the region. They have properties there, but they also had a big partnership with Colorado. But they were looking at lots of things around there. Well, Newmont stepped in before they bought Gold Corp and took out Nova Gold, so they're now tech's partner with Glore Creek. The Glore Creek Road runs right across our northern border. They're spending money there this year. I've heard through the grapevine that it could be up to $10 million. Newmont is also involved up north of the Justin property in the Yukon. They're on the Northwest Territory side of the border. We're right on the border with Northwest Territories. They're doing a lot of field work up there. They're onto something, and it's near our other property called The Hit. Plus, they're now pretty good partnership with GT Gold and helping them with lots of financing. I think it's up to $17 million this year. So, yeah, they're not the only ones. The Cisco's looking around. Barrick's looking around. There's a bunch. There's an awful lot. And there's a lot of base metal companies snooping around. And I mean big ones. Big ones. So eventually that makes you a potential takeout candidate. Well, or with some success, I think, strategic partnership, something like that. Because they are. Newmont is of that type of company that does look to the juniors. They want to be in on something. Jim, tell us about the share structure of the company. We've got $117 million issued and outstanding now, which because I raised another million dollars last week just to cover off any additional costs up in the Yukon that the money I raised last year was for the Forest Kerr Golden Triangle project, which means I've got just over $6 million in the till now and good season ahead of me and I'm not rushing out to do a big private placement. And as far as fully diluted, we've got some warrants that are all in the money. Last year, we brought in a million and a half with the exercise of warrants. We're in good shape. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm excited about the drill program. We look for those results in July. Starting in July, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, it'll be good. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. 
Join me now for a conversation with Vishal Gupta, the president and CEO of California Gold Mining Incorporated, trading on the OTCQX as CFGMF and on the CFE as CGM. Mr. Gupta is a professional geologist, having had experience working with numerous junior exploration and development stage mining companies. Most recently, he worked as an equity research analyst covering junior mining companies for Toronto-based financial institutions including Dundee Capital Markets, Fraser McKenzie, and Global Financial, where he conducted independent technical due diligence on several exploration and resource development programs throughout North, Central, and South America. California Gold Mining is focused on continued development of a high-quality gold resource on its 100% owned Fremont property in Mariposa County, California. The property consists of an entirely private and patented land package totaling 3,351 acres of historically producing gold mines, with a state highway, PG&E electric substation, and abundant water present on the property itself. The company is also pursuing establishing a greenhouse-based propagation of high CBD industrial hemp seed on the Fremont property, the cash flow from which could be used to continue development of its gold business with less dilution for shareholders. Vishal, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on at Ellis. Now, I live in California and I've been up to Northern California many times and I always thought for as long as I've lived here, this is gold country. This is where it all started. Why are we not producing more gold? Well, I mean, since the Second World War, most of the gold mines that were part of the gold rush of the 1800s and early 1900s, since the Second World War, all of those mines got shut down. The miners were sent to the war. The mining equipment was taken out of gold mines. At the time, gold mining was considered to be non-essential, and all that equipment was reappropriated to help with the war effort and was sent to iron ore mines and tungsten mines and nickel mines so that the U.S. Army could produce more artillery shells and ammunition and tanks and stuff like that. So for the last 75, 80 years, the gold mines in California have been shut down, much like most of the gold mines in the United States as well. And just in the last five to ten years or so, there has been renewed interest in California, and part of that renewed interest is California Gold. We consider ourselves to be one of the first movers back into the state of California. We've got a private piece of land in central eastern California in a county called Mariposa County, where we own 3,300 acres of completely private and patented piece of land. And this property is very special because it lies along that historic mother road gold belt of California where the gold rush took place. And out of that 200 kilometer long belt, we have a four kilometer strike of that mineralized shear zone running on our property. And out of that four kilometer strike, we have drilled out one kilometer only and just shallow ounces. We've got a resource estimate, 43101 compliant resource estimate of nearly 900,000 ounces only on that one kilometer. So we've got the potential for truly a world-class deposit, gold deposit here on our property. Now, what we're also looking to do is add a second business to our existing business of gold exploration. We're looking to add a second business that has to do with hemp cultivation. So we're looking at setting up a greenhouse on our property this year, and that greenhouse will be used specifically for propagation of very high CBD content industrial hemp seed. You know, when I think about something like that, it's sort of like we're talking about gold and then we say, but wait, there's more, just like one of those infomercials on TV. You're not relying on gold itself to drive this company. You've got a project in an industry that is just really getting started. When you hear anything about CBD anywhere in the world, that supply has to come from somewhere and you are propagating the seeds, aren't you? That's correct, yes. I mean, our roots are in the mining industry and we will never give that up. But the mining industry does go through some very extreme vagaries. We have been going through a pretty severe downturn in the gold sector 
specifically over the last six, seven, eight years. And for a junior company that is in the exploration phase of its life cycle to be in a position to do dilutive financings one after the other just to keep your goal exploration business up and running becomes very, very taxing. And so we were always looking at an alternative business to monetize this private piece of land that we own in Central California, generate some positive cash flow that would eventually help us achieve our objectives on the gold exploration side. That was the key. What you're saying, Vishal, is you're not going to continually have to go to the market to fund the Fremont Gold Project at all. That's the expectation. I mean, we right now are setting up this industrial hemp seed propagation project on our property. That project will become a business when we become revenue positive. The expectation is by the end of this year, we should have our first realization of our first revenues from that hemp seed business. Obviously, at that time, our hemp project will actually become a viable business. And around that time, we will have two paths in front of us. Either we change our company from being a gold exploration company to being an industrial hemp company, or we split the two businesses up into two separate companies. And the expectation is that we should be doing the latter. And if we do the latter, then we will try and do a plan of arrangement where existing shareholders of California Gold will own a share of each of the two separate companies after the split. And we will structure some sort of an arrangement, either it's a leasing arrangement or some sort of a royalty arrangement, where a portion of the cash flow, a small portion of the cash flow generated from the hemp business can be diverted to the gold company and will help the gold company achieve its gold expression objectives without going through that debt spiral of dilutive financing after dilutive financing. So you say a small percentage of the revenue from the hemp seed project will potentially be diverted to the gold project. But in actuality, the numbers that I've seen are quite astonishing when it comes to projections with regard to this business of yours. Let's talk about that with the understanding that we may be making some forward-looking statements. Well, I can tell you that there's a lot of compliance issues and a lot of regulatory issues that prevent me from outright coming out and telling the audience on your show what our revenue and cash flow projections are. But I can give you some bare minimum parameters that can be used to calculate these revenue numbers, these projected cash flow numbers that we hope to achieve from a hemp business as well. And as you said, a full disclaimer here, this is very forward-looking. We have not achieved this yet, so this cannot be completely relied on. I would like to say that our plan for that hemp project is to set up one greenhouse. That greenhouse is expected to be operational by the end of Q3, and we are going to be going through a seed propagation cycle, which is three months long, and we're going to keep on repeating that cycle over and over again to have up to four harvests in one year. Each harvest is supposed to be between 500 and 750 pounds of uh, industrial hemp seed. So collectively, in one year, on an annualized basis, we're looking at between 2003 thousand pounds of this very specialized industrial hemp seed. The CBD content in the seed is very high. And because of that high CBD content, the seed is selling in the U.S wholesale market for between 40 and 50,000 US dollars per pound today. But our long-term projections show that we should be very comfortable stating that the long-term wholesale prices on that seed should be somewhere between 15,000 and 30,000 US dollars per pound. So you're looking at two to 3,000 pounds of seed on an annual basis at a price of between 15,000 and 30,000 US dollars per pound on a wholesale basis. That's some significant cash flow just from one greenhouse. And we invite our listeners to do their own math, I guess. In the mining business, we talk about offtake when it comes to whatever resource we're bringing out of the ground. So in this respect, you have certainly been discussing where these seeds are going to go. 
We have, yes. And very importantly, I mean, I'll be very honest with you, Ellis, we don't have in-house expertise when it comes to specifically industrial hemp cultivation. So what we've done is we've actually gone and sourced a consulting group that has a specialization and an expertise specifically in industrial hemp cultivation. And we have signed a contractual agreement with them for them to do all the industrial hemp cultivation and seed propagation on our property on our behalf on a contract basis. And that same firm, this firm has been around for over a decade now, and this consulting firm has an impeccable reputation in the industrial hemp space. The same firm is the one that has relationships with multiple dozens of different farming co-ops throughout the United States. We are leveraging their brand name in the industrial hemp space to sell our seed. So the expectation is that the consulting group, it's called Delta Valley Hemp, by the way, they're based out of Chicago, Illinois. So Delta Valley Hemp will be purchasing all of our seed from us. They've already given us an off-take agreement for our entire seed production for 2019 and 2020. And all of this seed will be passed on to farming co-ops throughout the United States. And Delta Valley Hemp will be making a small brokerage commission on basically helping us facilitate the sale of seed to the farming co-op. So if all of your hemp seed is spoken for in Northern California, in the Fremont area, then are you going to be looking elsewhere? To grow. Absolutely. Our game plan here is, and just to give you a, a color, just to give you an idea of uh, what our growth plans are for this industrial hemp space, Delta Valley Hemp has given us an exclusivity agreement for five different states in the United States. So we have an exclusivity agreement signed with Delta Valley Hemp for the states of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Arizona. We're also looking at other states that we don't have an exclusivity agreement signed with Delta Valley Hemp on, simply because they have other partners working in those other states with them as well. But we're also looking at Illinois, we're looking at Kentucky, we're looking at Missouri, we're looking at Wisconsin, we're looking at New York State. So we're looking at a few different states in the United States to see where we can go and acquire more land, where we can go and set up our hemp business on a much, much larger scale. Specifically, if our first greenhouse is successful, then we want be in a position to expand very, very rapidly. And the groundwork for that has already begun. Northern California probably has one of the best environments to have multiple crops throughout the season. With a greenhouse in play in these areas, then you have an unlimited growing potential. That's correct. In a greenhouse, it's a completely controlled environment. You're talking about temperature, humidity, sunlight, moisture, everything is completely controlled. So we are not exposed to the vagaries of climate and weather patterns. In a greenhouse, in a controlled environment, we can have as many as four crops on an annualized basis. Do you see any urban farming in the future as a result of this technology? There may very well be urban farming in the future. I think what we're looking at is for the next two to three years, is going to be a specialty crop. You will need an educational sort of a time frame where experts like Delta Valley Hemp will help educate the farming communities throughout the United States to come up the learning curve on this specialty plant and its benefits. And there's some specialty planting and caring and harvesting techniques that farmers throughout the United States will have to learn over the next two to three years or so. And yes, definitely over the next two to three, four years, we'll see that industrial hemp, especially with high CBD content, will start to become much more mainstream than it is today. Let's just say for the record that many juniors right now in the gold space are not doing that well in this particular market. There's plenty of opportunities out there, and there are certainly a few that are doing well. You having this hemp aspect of your business has certainly helped you with regard to growing your shareholder base and interest in the company, especially recently. Is that not correct? Absolutely, absolutely. We just came out with our first press release on our intention to enter the industrial hemp space 
literally three months ago. And since then, our stock price has more than doubled. And of course, we had very recent acceleration of our warrants as well, which helped top of the treasury. We've had a lot more interest in the capital market, especially here in Canada, also in the United States as well. We've had a lot of interest from retail investors who are very interested in learning more about what we're trying to do on the industrial hemp space. It just seems like the audience for industrial hemp and industrial hemp derived CBD is much bigger, especially in the United States, than what it is for gold mining. And then as a result, we're introducing them to gold, aren't we? Sort of as a byproduct? Well, absolutely. And it goes the other way around in Canada, where Canadian audiences are very attuned with the precious metal sector. And industrial hemp is a bit of an education for them. And in the United States, it's turning out to be the other way around. Let's talk about the politics in California. When you speak to Canadians, especially investors and geologists, they don't want to touch the area. How have you managed to get past that in Northern California? Well, California is a bit of a pain to do any business in, regardless of whether you're in the mining business or you're in any sort of a hard metals, hard assets business. California is a, it's a really tough jurisdiction to do any business in. But with California Gold's property, the Fremont property, we've got a few things going for us. And that sets us a little bit apart. It basically gives us a bit of a leverage when it comes to being in California. First of all, it's a completely private piece of land, completely private and it's patented. We own 100% of the surface rights. We own 100% of the mineral rights. And as private landowners, regardless of where in the United States you are, even if you are in a state like California, which is a tough jurisdiction to do business in, as a private landowner, you have substantial rights. You have significant rights. We're quite fortunate that we actually own the entirety of the land. We've got 3,300 acres of completely private land. We own all of it. Not only that, but also we are in a county called Mariposa County, which is an autonomous county. And what I mean by that is that when it comes to environmental permitting of any project, in this case, the county is the lead agency, not the state of California. Many other counties in California do not have the wherewithal to be the lead agency on environmental permitting. And in that case, the state steps in as the lead agency. In those circumstances, the probability of getting your project environmentally permitted is slim to none. In our case, we are very fortunate that we have Mariposa County, which is an autonomous county. And in an autonomous county where the county is the lead agency, if you have local community support, then the probability of you getting your project permitted, that probability is very high. Since in our case, we do have a lot of local community support. And the reason for that is that the county of Mariposa has an unemployment issue. We've got as much as 30% of the county's population draws on social welfare. And as much as another 30% of the county's population is hired by the local county government just to make sure that people have jobs and have a way to sustain their livelihoods. In this sort of a situation, the county of Mariposa sees that a project like California Goals can bring hundreds of jobs, can bring millions of dollars in tax revenue, and that is very, very lucrative. So we have a lot of local support from the community within Mariposa County, and because of that, we believe our chances of getting permitted, both on the mining side and on the hemp side, are very, very high. That's certainly excellent. Now, tell us about some of the people involved in your company, and specifically, I mean the shareholders, whether they be uh, institutional or otherwise. Who's involved? Well, we've got a bit of a unique shareholder structure to our company. We've got about 58, 59 million shares outstanding. About 80, 85% of the company is owned by eight to nine high net worth families. We've got four billionaires that own significant chunks of the company. The board and management team of the company own about 60, 65% of the stock as well. So it's very, very tightly held. It's almost like a private company that is publicly traded. For the first time, we're in a position where we can actually start to expand our shareholder base in a dramatic fashion so that we can inject more liquidity into the company. I'll give you some examples of the families that are actually involved. Our largest shareholder is the Tomlinson family out of Ottawa, Canada. Now, the Tomlinson family, it's a multi-billion dollar family. Their their net worth is over a billion dollars. They are involved in a vertically integrated heavy construction business throughout eastern Canada, 
and they own about 30% of our company, 30-31% of our company. We also have another very high net worth family called the Raisenberg family that is based in London, Canada as well, London, Ontario, Canada, and uh, they own about 15% of our company. We've got the Cronin family also based out of London, Ontario, Canada that is involved in the mortgage and real estate lending business. I think collectively their group owns about 17-18% of the company. You can see just between three or four names, you can see that vast majority of the shares are held. So these shareholders have been very supportive, have been very loyal. They have been through thick and thin with us over the last six, seven years, despite the, as I mentioned to you before, the vagaries of the gold market that we have been experiencing over the last seven, eight years. So essentially, and there's no guarantees on this, you've sort of de-risked the project at the outcome. That's correct. Part of the reason why I joined the company six years ago, I am a geologist. At the time, I was working for several different investment banks in Toronto, Canada. This project came across my desk in 2013. And uh, of course, you know, I started doing my due diligence on this project right away. Part of the reason why I joined the company as part of the executive team is, first of all, the project was phenomenal from a gold exploration and resource perspective. But very importantly, this company also had a shareholder base that could sustain and that could withstand the ups and downs in the gold sector that we are experiencing today. And so this company had access to capital back then, 2013. This is part of the reason why this company has survived, while a lot of its peers have not. This was a very important factor in my decision-making before I joined the company in 2013. In full disclosure, I'm a shareholder of California Gold Mining. Cheerfully so, I might add, and also your company is a paid sponsor of the program. Vishal, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to more discussion in the future. Thanks for joining us on the program. Ellis, my pleasure. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Vishal Gupta, the President and CEO of California Gold Mining Incorporated, trading on the OTCQX as CFGMF and on the CSE as CGM. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us today at ellismartinreport.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.